Well, hi again, everyone. Welcome into Unanchored Boston, uh, another great show brought to you as always by Cold Springs RV, your destination for all things camping and where? We're in New Hampshire, of course, and by the great George Gray at George Gray's Lexington Toyota, 409 Mass Ave in Lexington. George Gray will be your friend for life. And speaking about great, we have one of the greatest guests we've ever had in this show, and I'm giving this uh, before we even go out as one syllable, Sean. One of the greatest guests we've ever had. And Lobel, you handle the intro, so take it away. Well, thanks, uh, Lynchy. And uh, we welcome Sean McDonough. Uh, and I unabashedly would say not only the most versatile, but probably the finest sports broadcaster that ever come out of, come out of this area. And that includes a lot of people. Sean has really uh, elevated himself to can do anything. He can do uh, tennis. He can do the Olympics. He can do basketball. He can do football. And most... Uh, Importantly, he can do hockey, which is, I would think, the most difficult of all uh, for all kinds of reasons. But I'll let, we'll, we'll let him uh, weigh in on that. I'm leaving some things out with college football and and the NCAA Final Fours. And you've just done and all the Masters, all the big the golf majors. Damn it, Sean. Where are you? <laughs> you guys knew me when I was young. Remember that? that was yeah, great. I do remember when you were young. But you've become what we all wanted to be. You know, at the pinnacle of your profession and the best profession there could possibly be unless you're curing cancer. Well, there were uh, a lot of us who grew up wanting to be the two of you. Not that I'm uh, that much younger than you two, because I'm not. But um, so it's really a treat to be on here with you guys. And I appreciate that nice introduction, which uh, obviously you read just like I wrote it out for you, which was kind of you. I've just been lucky. You know, I knew growing up, being around my dad, that this was what I wanted to do, you know, call sporting events probably when I was seven or eight years old. And, you know, to have had the chance to have done all the things that you just mentioned, Bob, is really, uh, you know, I feel blessed beyond measure. And that I'm still getting to do it is uh, even one more wonderful. Yeah. I think you're getting to do it more. That's what I think. I think people are realizing what a terrific talent you are and, I think the versatility, just there are just so many things. I, it was Saturday. I, I was listening to a Red Sox game for a change because of the Mookie Betts in town. Mookie Betts did more for the Red Sox this season than any any one player on any team that came into town. He was the show, and he did more right. to draw attention to the local baseball club and and in not a necessarily positive way, but I. We'll get to your comments in, in a bit, but I'm listening to the radio coming home from Granite Lakes after playing another, you know, round of golf. And I'm listening to McDonough and, and Castiglione on the radio. And I'm trying to listen to Sean. And I'm trying to say, what makes what makes Sean so good? And it has to die. And you can you can may have your own secrets, Sean, and, and things that you might pass on, but there was a conversational aspect to it. It was, of course, the facts. You have to have facts and you have to know where to get the facts. You have to have them at your disposal. You have to be organized. You have to be prepared. But there was also the, uh, how do I, I don't know how to put it. It was uh, a straightforward, dynamic presentation pace. I guess that was a tempo and pace, which was so that's the thing that I recognize more than anything is I'm going from stoplight to stoplight in Quincy, the pace of the broadcast. And it was measured. It was like a, 
was like a, a musical presentation. And I've always thought that, and I'll shut up, Lynn. The longest introduction I've ever heard in, in, in the history. <laughs> well, I, I think that you used a key word, Bob. I think a lot of play-by-play -play is pace and rhythm and flow and timing. And it's actually changed this year in baseball because, you know, baseball used to drag on forever and there was no pitch clock and you had all kinds of time to tell stories or be conversational with Joe or Will Fleming or Lou Merloni or whoever else we're on there with. And, you know, you could bust each other's chops and tell long stories. And, you know, now you can't because the pitches are coming every 10 or 15 seconds. We still have the drop-ins we have to get in for all of our great advertisers. So that needs to be prioritized. So actually the pace of doing baseball has changed. And you know, I complained forever about how slow baseball was and how long the games were. And you know, there was just so much time when there was nothing going on. But now I'd kind of like to go back to the happy medium a little bit because baseball has now almost become this rapid fire sport where, you know, here's the pitch ball one, here's pitch ball two. He's got an eight game hitting streak, ball three, which it never used to be before. So I think that's the key to uh, as important a thing for any play-by-play -play person is the, the timing and the rhythm. You mentioned the preparation. That is really important as well. That's really uh, probably the most important thing. But um, there's a certain rhythm and flow to play-by-play. -play. It's like paint. It's like being an artist. You're painting a picture. You're erasing that picture with another picture. And then you're erasing that picture with another picture. That, to me, was always the way that, that I would describe uh how play-by-play -play works and it's and it's so different you know radio versus tv the, the radio games on wei for the red sox you know people used to say to me when i was doing almost all tv and still am doing mostly tv oh you know tv must be so easy you don't have to describe anything if you don't want to whereas you know on the radio you have to describe everything and there's some truth to that you know and it's part of the fun of radio is you really do have to paint the pictures as they like to say in that cliche but you know, on the radio, you're also in charge of your own destiny. You know, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about in whatever order you want to talk about it in and describe things your own way. On TV, a lot of it is you're just putting captions on pictures, right? The producers and directors put pictures on the screen. and You guys know because you've done it. And then you're basically putting the hopefully appropriate caption on the picture. So they're quite a bit different. They're each fun and challenging in their own way. You know, you used a great word there, preparation. Jerry Remy, if he told me this once, he told me this 50 times. Of all the guys I've ever worked with, nobody, nobody has been more prepared than Sean McDonough. And I think that's a pretty, pretty, pretty good compliment, don't you? Well, it's a great compliment, especially coming from him, because as you guys know, I mean, Jerry got to the park about 1 o'clock every day for a 7 o'clock game and was in the clubhouse and talking to everybody. And, you know, had all kinds of information, but... I do think it's the most important thing. It's funny. I'm sitting here after I'm done with you guys. I'm going to jump on a conference call with the South Carolina football coaches for my football game this weekend. And uh, so, you know, we, we don't just show up and wait. This is my chart from a North Carolina game last year. Amazing. Uh, with offense and defense and all this, uh, you know, it's 95% of it never gets on the air. But it's kind of the defense against when it's 42 to 3. And you can't just keep saying first and 10, second and five. That was a nice catch. You know, our part of our job is to tell the people watching about the players and the coaches and make them take an interest in them as people. A lot of people who are going to watch this football game doing this weekend 
have most people probably never heard of anybody on either team. So it's not like when you do the NFL and everybody knows who these players are and they're really just kind of tuning in to watch the game. In college sports, a lot of it is kind of humanizing these people as well. So the preparation is the most important part of it. And, and you know, that'll probably be the biggest thing that makes me not want to do it anymore. When I get tired of doing that, then I'll stop because you're cheating. You know, you're cheating the people you work with, you're cheating the audience, and you're cheating yourself because if, if you don't prepare as hard as you can, then you're not going to be as good as you can be. Are you still a fan? Less. Are you still a fan it's of the right question. It's a great question. I'm less of a fan than I used to be, you know, and I remember, you know, being around my dad who had, didn't have much fan and I'm thinking, how can you just go to the game and watch it and not, you know, sort of be emotionally invested in it. And then, you know, when you're around as long as we all have been, some of that goes out the window. You know, obviously I grew up cheering for all of the, the local teams and I still do for the most part. Um, but as you do this long enough, you get to make friends and, and, you know, the people part of it become, that becomes who you cheer for. You know, like uh, David Quinn, who was the BU coach and New York Ranger coach is the San Jose Sharks coach. Now he's one of my closest friends. Remember I could play golf with him yesterday. And so I become a San Jose shark fan. I'm not allowed to say this in New England, but John Harbaugh is one of my best friends. So I'm, I'm a Baltimore Raven fan, although I have to be delicate about that around here. But, uh, so, I, you know, I think as you get older, the fan part of it becomes the friendships that you make and the people who you're close to and you want to see them win. We just had a great moment this uh, this weekend. Megan Kang you know, from Rockland is a member at Boston Golf Club where I play. She just won her first LPGA Tour event at, I think, 25 years old. So we're, all of us down there were super excited for her. So th those are the things that get my rooting interest involved. Where were you, what were you when you talked about Mookie Betts this weekend? Were you being the fan? Were you being the announcer? Or were you being both? That's <laughs> uh, another really good question. Uh, I would say that was both and probably more the fan part of me. You know, as soon as I heard they had made that trade, you know, this isn't revisionist history. I thought that's just about the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, in the interim since then, nothing has happened to change my mind. And... I guess, Bob, what kind of drove it home this weekend was watching him play again in person after not having had that pleasure for quite a while, uh, but watching him play for three days in a row and just seeing what a great baseball player in every way that he is and how much fun he is to watch, never mind the positive impact that he has on his team and how he does it with a smile and a face. I mean, he's He's everything you'd want in a player on your team. And I, I, you know, I, I, when you, those guys are very hard to find, players of that caliber uh, who come with the rest of the intangibles too. So to move on from that is still unfathomable to me. You know, we can debate whether he would have stayed or not and what the truth of that is. I'm not sure anybody involved in that has ever really fully said it one way or the other. Um, Mookie seemed to suggest before the first game when he did his press thing Friday that, you know, he basically said, go ask the Red Sox, right? So I think he was trying to say, I would have stayed if they wanted me to, and then they made the right deal. And as the three of us all know, have you ever heard of somebody who didn't stay when he got offered the most money? I mean, in any sport, you know, not just the Red Sox, but not just Boston, but usually the person, the team that offers the guy the most money is the team that winds up with him. So... I think if the Red Sox had been willing to do that, he would still be here. But they weren't, and they had their reasons. And 
we go on, but it was really painful to watch him play against them this weekend and be reminded of how great he is. You know, have we come full circle with the uh, the days of uh, Colin Fist not getting his uh, contract uh, sent out and postmarked by the right date, and then same thing with Fred Lynn and, and Burleson and all these trades, and then Red Sox went from a superstar team to just an average team with the Glenn Hoffmans of the world and the Dave Stapletons of the world. And it looks like we're right back in that sort of same uh, mediocrity uh, era that we had back then. Yeah, I think we are, at least for now. Uh, I think they would say, you know, the future's bright and their farm system is rated whatever it's rated. Uh, and, and there seem to be, in, in defense of the Red Sox, more and more people who think their, their farm system is actually pretty good, that there are prospects down there who figure to be major league players. But as we all know, you know, that's not what we're accustomed to. You know, we're accustomed to pay the money, go get great players now. You know, to me, you know, when they, they traded for Pedro Martinez, they gave up prospects and people, oh, they gave up this guy and that guy. Well, you have those guys hoping that someday they might be close to Pedro Martinez. He is Pedro Martinez. You know what he's going to be. I mean, he's Pedro Martinez. So, you know, I'd rather have the known than the unknown myself. So I've never been that much of a believer in, oh, well, we'll lean on the farm system and wait for these guys to get here because a high percentage of the time, these guys never turn out to be as good as you hope they're going to be or think they might be. I think one of the things that Lynchy and I had a luxury of being was being more of a fan at the anchor desk than we would have been as a play-by-play person. It's just not a lot of neutrality when you're sitting at the anchor desk. You're not a news person. You're a sportscaster. Right. A, a job that's fading into the sunset, by the way, as we all know. Uh, but I, I think the fact Red Sox fans have a, a love-hate relationship with this team, and it's the love-hate combination that makes it so uh, compelling. I mean, you can't just all love something or hate it all because that will disappear. It's the love-hate thing that keeps everybody involved. Because I know that's a weird concept, but I really think there's a lot to that. That's, the only way I can deal with being a Red Sox fan is not being disappointed when they lose. Expect them to lose. <laughs> Expect them to lose. Uh, well, you know. That's all right, but everybody's got to deal with it in their own way. That's yeah, I guess so. And, you know, I get credit, I guess, for being candid or whatever. But to your earlier question, there is still the fan part. I, mean, I think people know when they watch or listen to the game, I want the Red Sox to win. I really do. <laughs> you know, um, so, uh, you know, I, I think people can still hear that and understand that even as maybe you're saying something that's a, a little bit critical, like the stuff about Mookie last weekend. But it yeah, it's, been, it's been an interesting team to watch because, you know, they, they've they teased us a few times this year where they go on these little winning stretches and you think, okay, maybe this is it. But, you know, the, the defense is so bad and, and the pitching is so inconsistent and, and not healthy, which has to do with the inconsistency. They're never going to sustain long stretches of winning. And, you know, to Lynch's point – you know, it's, it's a mediocre team. You know, I, I don't think they've underachieved or overachieved. I think when you look at the record and you look at the roster, as Bill Parcells used to say, uh, you are what your record says you are. And I think their record is a pretty good reflection of the talent on the roster. You know, Fenway Park, it's almost that the Red Sox gets its good attendance because there's still a tourist attraction. 
Will that ever, will, will that fade away if mediocrity continues to run rampant every single year? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't care if they could be playing Quincy literally and they're still going to draw 35,000 people. Yeah, although not always. The, you know, we've had a couple of games, and it's shocking when you're used to sellouts year after year after year. We had a couple of games this year where we gave the attendance, and it was 31,900 and something. Now, I think in, in the middle of the summer when, you know, the tourists uh, are really here in town, you're going to be sold out or close to it just about every night because it is a tourist attraction and people who come from out of town, you know, we have a million wonderful things in the city to see, but Fenway Park is one of those things that people want to visit. So yeah, I do think that'll continue to happen. And, uh, you know, we have so many people from out of town, students and people who moved here to work that, you know, I mean, the Dodgers the other day, they, they must have had, they had thousands of fans there. I, I wouldn't even want to guess, but they, it was audible and noticeable and, but uh, I'm hoping this mediocrity isn't here to stay, that, you know, that they'll go back to uh, being more of a contender than they are right now. But uh, I don't know, based on the current direction, I think they're going to have to make a decision on Heim Bloom and whether or not they really believe that, uh, you know, that he's helping to lead them in the right direction. Sean, in our age group, there have been a lot of great announcers through through all through this run in the last couple of decades, I mean, Musburger, Gowdy, is there one guy in your that you uh, would have liked to have been like or emulate? Was it Vince Scully or was it a combination? Don Emmerich? Yeah, is there a better announcer than Don Emmerich? Uh, no. You know, and that's one of the hard things when I basically replaced him, even though it was different networks. You know, Doc had been the lead voice of the NHL and national TV for a couple of decades. So impossible shoes to fill. But that happens, right, when you get an opportunity at that level. Because I remember when CBS hired me to do the World Series in 1992, and I replaced Jack Buck. And if you had asked me that question then, I said, who do you about? Jack Buck is as great as there is. Right. You know, to me, one of the things we talk a little bit about the preparation part and the pacing and the rhythm and just kind of having a natural instinctive flow for play by play. Um, but one of the other things to me that is a stamp of greatness and Jack Buck had it uh, as much as anybody was, you know, how do you do in the big moment? Because it happens live and you don't get a chance to do it over again. You know, and, and when, you know, I don't believe what I just saw, you know, and stuff like that. And he, if you looked at his career, and I actually said this to his son, Joe, who's become a good friend. Um, you know, his dad just nailed it. His dad was lucky to have a lot of big moments. You know, and we'll see you tomorrow night when the, the ball went out of the, the Metrodome, you know. So, um, you know, I, I when I replaced Jack Buck, you know, part of me was I wanted to say to CBS, I didn't want to cost myself a job. But like, really? I'm replacing Jack Buck? I mean, come on. So... <laughs> It's kind of the way I felt with Doc Emmerich. So, you know, but when you get to an opportunity at that level, you know, the, your predecessor should have been somebody good or they shouldn't or great because they shouldn't have had that opportunity if they weren't and wouldn't have had it. So that's one of the biggest compliments when you get an opportunity. And when I started doing Monday Night Football, I was the fifth person who had ever done Monday Night Football in 47 years as play-by-play. -play. And the other people were Keith Jackson, Frank Gifford, Al Michaels, and Mike Tirico. So you're like, Gosh, you know, it's and I probably proved I didn't belong in that group, but uh, but it was nice to be in that group for a few years. So 
you know, it's uh, and and to go back to your question, Bob, the you know when I was a kid, when we were kids, Kurt Gowdy did every big game, right? I mean, he that was a guy kind of on the national level that you wanted to be because he did every Super Bowl, World Series, Rose Bowl, and every other big game. But back then, there were how many networks, right? And you know, I think he was at NBC for most of that, and they they had all that stuff. You know, now there there are many more networks with ESPN and Fox and these events are way spread out. So, you know, we just had Joe Buck to my charity golf tournament a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know if anybody will ever do it. He did it. He did 24 world series and six super bowls. You know, there's, there's nobody coming after him. That's going to do that. He'll do more super bowls now uh, for ABC and ESPN. So Dick Enberg, I loved when I was a kid, you know, didn't make it about himself. Great storyteller. It always just felt like a big game. And then growing up around here, you know, I, I was so blessed I think we all were that we had so many great broadcasters that I grew up listening to and, you know, really trying to emulate the Ned Martins and Ken Coleman's and Fred Cusick's and Bob Wilson's and Johnny most. You can't emulate Johnny most. You can imitate Johnny most, but you know, he was unique. No one was going to be able to be Johnny most, but you know, I was really lucky. Gil Santos is another, I, you know, I don't want to Mike Gorman, you know, you know, we had some of the all time great broadcasters in all of the sports. Here. What the, um... Of all, all the sports you've done, what, which is the toughest to broadcast? Well, um, you know, I think Bob kind of alluded to it. I would say right now hockey is, and I'm not just saying that, you know, as an excuse if I don't do well. <laughs> and, and the reason, the reason is, you know, most of these booths now are dangling from the ceiling of these gigantic arenas. So you would think, my friends always think, oh, you must be right down there. We all remember the old Boston Garden when the hockey broadcast was in the front row of the balcony, and it was perfect. I mean, you could, other than being a little uncomfortable and the people and the on-cameras behind you, you know, making faces and trying to get on camera. Um, but it was, you know, you were so close to the ice, you could see everything. You could hear things. You, know, you could hear the players talking to each other. You could hear the linesman telling the guy, you know, to – knock it off with a stick before he dropped the puck on a face-off. You know, now in the TD Garden, just by comparison, um, the, the ice level, the arena level is on the third floor of the arena, and the broadcast booth is on nine. So it's like being on a six, looking out a six-story window and trying to describe things that happened on the sidewalk. So, um, and the puck is not that big. You know, Doc Emmerich, who Bob's referenced a few times, he had a phrase when the puck was around the net, he said, and it did not go, which means I don't know what happened, but it didn't wind up in the net. You know, I don't know if he missed the net. I don't know if it hit the post. I don't know if it grazed the goalie's shoulder or some defenseman swept it away. And I've decided now as we head toward my third year of doing this for ABC and ESPN, I need to come up with my own version of, and it did not go because there are a lot of times I didn't really know what happened. And I wasn't really sure how to describe it. And it's better to use a phrase like that that doesn't really mean much than to say, you know, nice save. And then you see the replay and the thing was wide by this much. And the goalie never touched it. So I wish we were lower uh, in most of these arenas. I was thrilled when we had Vegas and Dallas in the, uh, in the Western Conference Final because they're actually two of the few booths in the arena that are low. They're kind of in the middle of the stands. The... Our dear friend to all of us, Nate Greenberg, you know, long time legendary 
PR man for the Bruins and legendary human being, when they built the new garden, I said, Nate, you know, this used to be the best broadcast league or position in the league. And he said, well, these sweet holders pay a lot of money. The people who are like on four and five, you know, at the new TV garden. Now. I said, your TV rights holders pay you a lot of money. And we actually have to see the game. You know, these people are having shrimp and having a glass of wine and talking to each other. Oh, the puck went in. What happened? I missed it. Is there a TV? You know, I'll watch the replay in our suite. So uh, people don't care. It's a very long way of complaining about stuff that people really don't care about. Other than me. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You so you'd be amazed how not only how far away they are, but how small some of these booths are, too. Like when Ray Ferraro said, we, when we first started out, he was next to me. And the booth in the TD Garden is maybe wide enough for three people to stand shoulder to shoulder, never mind when you have notes and stuff. And he said, you know, I actually prefer to be between the benches, you know, down by the penalty box. I said, go. <laughs> okay, that I can spread out a little bit, too. So, And it's nice to have somebody down there who is actually close enough to see if the puck got deflected or whatever happened. So, But people don't care, which is why he's talking about. You talked about announcers being able – to meet the moment, to be able to do the moment in legendary fashion, uh, I don't believe I don't believe that happened. Or I don't, you know, Bobby Thompson's home run. Or, or uh, what was yours so far? Let's assume you haven't had yours yet. But, but was it the world? Was it the first ba Toronto? So the far, in Toronto? There was probably the um, the '92. National League um, Championship Series, the great uh, Atlanta Braves-Pittsburgh Pirates yep. series, which, by the way, I think Tim Wakefield might have been the MVP if Pittsburgh hadn't blown Game 7 because right. he was great for the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. But, um, you know, Atlanta's the favorite. It goes to Game 7. Everybody kind of knew this was the last hurrah for the Pittsburgh Pirates with Jim Leland and Barry Bonds and Van Slyke and those guys because uh, – you know, they were not going to be able to afford to keep all those guys. And they led two to nothing going to the bottom of the ninth. Doug Drabeck was unbelievable. So was John Smoltz. And uh, and then Atlanta rallied for three runs in the bottom of the ninth. And Sid Bream scored the winning run with two outs. You know, he was safe by six inches. And he was one of the slowest guys. I think he had five knee operations by that point. And uh, so I screamed, save, save. My voice cracked. And... Um, I remember thinking, oh, my God, that's the biggest call I'll ever have in my life. And I just I just mangled it. I mean, my voice like squeaked like a 12 year old. And you guys both know Billy Andrade, uh, the, the great professional golfer from uh, from Rhode Island. Billy lived in Atlanta, still does. He, his wife's Jody's from Atlanta. They were in the back of the booth at the old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So the game ended. We had to do the postgame show. That postgame was most notable for Deion Sanders walking around the Atlanta clubhouse and throwing ice buckets of uh, water onto Tim McCarver because right. he was upset about something Tim had said, not that I had said as well. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, that was the same night. Oh, wow. So we're on for quite a while doing the postgame and the interviews, and then we finally finished. I take the headset off, and I said to Jody and Billy, the whole park's empty now. I said, oh, my God, you know, that's the biggest moment I've ever called, and I just – it's I just squeaked so I got down to the truck uh, and people were running up to me and hugging me 
Like you totally nailed that. That was the perfect call for that moment. And la, 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 la. But turn around, look at Billy and Joey. Like, okay, maybe it wasn't that bad. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I think any call like that, you know, it should reflect the moment, right? And that was one of the most astonishing endings in the history of Major League Baseball, one of the greatest games. Um, Steve Hurt, you know, the legendary guy from the Elias Sports Bureau, said you could have made the argument it was the greatest game in baseball history. Major League Baseball Network, I think, did a series called Baseball's Greatest Games, and they said it was number four of all time. So, you know, to be there and what we talked about, to just have that, you don't get to do it again. So he's not going to go back to second base and try to come around and score again so you can get the call right. So that would put to a You know, you've got to be in the seat to begin with. That's got to be good enough to be in the seat to begin with and then hope fortune and hope that fortune comes your way at some point that you'll get an opportunity like that. And that right. No, that's comes. exactly right. And some guys like Jack Buck, it seemed like he had a million of them. I, I only mentioned a couple, but, you know, I could recite several more. Um, you know, when Ozzie Smith hit the home run for the same, go crazy, folks, go crazy. You know, he was uh, such a great broadcaster and a, and a great guy. But, um, yeah. And Stockton, yeah, Stockton nailed the fist home run. Yeah, it made his career. I mean, Al Michaels, right? Yeah. He was a right. young, up-and-coming guy. I mean, that's probably the greatest in-the-moment call of all time. He was it's the true. To go back to what we are talking about, putting captions on pictures, there's nothing yeah. that he could have said that would have been better than that. You and, believe and in miracles. career, you know, so. He did it know, twice. It, he did it in the, in the uh, gold medal game, and he did it in the Russian game. He had great... Uh, you believe in miracles, and then this impossible dream comes true. Yeah. No, he just nailed it every time. And what I like, too, is you know, it wasn't scripted. You know, sometimes I think you know when you're doing a championship game, well, this team or that team is going to win tonight, and I'm going to say something. And I didn't script it, but when Toronto won the first World Series, the two years that I did the World Series in 92 and 93, Toronto won both of them. And 92 was the first one. It was the first Canadian team that ever won. And I said something like, for the first time ever, the world championship banner is going to fly north of the border. And I tried to say it like it, I hadn't thought about it, but I had. And when I listened to the tape, it, it, I'm still like, oh, that, that sounded rehearsed. Yeah. Don't, don't always, do that you again. You always criticize yourself more than anybody. I, yeah, I think we all probably do, right? I but, think we um, all probably do. So I, I just decided no matter what, you know, I'm not going to do it. And then, you know, Lynchy, you referenced the Joe Carter home run, which was the next year in game six and to, to our, the point we were just making about you know you got to be lucky right the at the time that was only the second time the world series had ever ended on a home run the other one was bill Mazeroski back in 1960 right. so that i only got to do two world series on national tv because cbs lost the contract after 93 and you had one of those um but you know it just just call it in the moment and say whatever comes into your head, which is what I did. And it was, it was a much better call, I think, as a, as a result. But, uh, but you have to trust yourself to do that. Right? It's sometimes oh, a little easier. Totally I'm going to make sure I get this right. So I'm going to write I, this I down. Totally can see, I can totally can see people scripting things too, because they just want to be sure that they, you know, but no, it's got to be natural and it's got to be, it's got to be true. I got to also do a commercial here because, we love our sponsors and we just As don't have should. that many. We have to fight for every one of them we have. <laughs> so one, of the, one of our biggest and best sponsors is the Cold Springs RV uh, up in Ware, New Hampshire. So we're in this particular case, they've been a great and loyal sponsor uh, and they have great 
uh, products, Cold Springs RV. They're making room for the new 2024 models. They must move out of the current inventory of the 2023. So you got a great opportunity to see travel trailers, motorhomes, pop-ups, whatever. The deals are not going to last, but they're there. Uh, Labor Day is coming up. So this is a great time to go up and think about your fall camping experiences, Cold Springs RV and where in New Hampshire. We have a great question, Sean. Well, I don't know. I think it's a great question. It happens to belong to Lynch, so that's why it makes it a great question. <laughs> Go online at coldspringsrv.com, coldspringsrv.com. And now the question of the week to Sean McDonough from Mike Lynch. All right, Sean. We always uh, remember, uh, of course, John Madden uh, didn't fly, so he had his Madden cruiser throw him around. So Cold Springs yeah. RV, we're trying to convince them to build a Lobby cruiser that we can take around, you know, maybe so – we, we throw this out to all our guests. We're going to give you the Lobby Cruiser for a week, and you can drive cross-country in it. But you will have to invite somebody, past, present, to be a sports figure, a news figure, an entertainer, somebody to ride shotgun with you, somebody you'd like to ride, ride cross-country with in the Old Springs RV and talk to for an entire week. Who would it be? Oh, wow. Well, if I could have my dad back, that would be the easy answer. Great answer. A one. Yeah. I mean – does it have to be somebody living? <laughs> no, no, it does not. Well, that would be the easy one. Yeah, you know, my dad's been gone 20 years, and you know he was blessed to be a friend of both of you, and uh, have the utmost respect for both of you guys personally and professionally. And uh, you know, I, I miss him every day. I was just on the Ness and Jimmy Fun Radio Telethon and talking about Jerry Remy and you know how much we miss him. And so uh, he'd be another one. You know, the I've been blessed to work with a lot of really fascinating people like uh, i don't know how big college basketball fans you are but bill raftery would, is a pretty fun guy to travel around the country yeah yep. uh, we probably hit a few spots along the way but um yeah i mean we've all all three of us have just been so blessed in, in this life that we've been fortunate enough to lead professionally and personally you, know, you meet so many fascinating people it would be hard to choose but uh, my dad would be an easy choice for me. That, that, that's a great choice. And speaking of your dad, when you were a kid, I'm sure uh, you, uh, you you tagged along with him to so many different events. Was there one person you were introduced to that just blew you away and said, wow, I can't believe I just shook hands with so-and-so? Yeah. Um, it happened all the time, Lynchy. Um, I think my dad kind of got a kick out of it. We were kids. I mean, we were all huge sports fans. And... My dad would know when he was re expecting a call from Pete Rozelle or Red Auerbach or somebody. So he would, one time we were raking leaves and he had the front door of the house open. And he said, uh, when the phone rings, you run in and answer and be very polite and ask who's calling, please. Well, he knew Johnny Unitas was going to call. So uh, it was Johnny Unitas. So, but in person, the, um, I got, my dad introduced me to George Hallis. And he just, he just had the aura, you know, he was, you know, older and, but he just exuded everything. You know, he was George Hallis. It was like, oh my God. So, uh, but there are a lot of moments like that, you know, the me, you know, just growing up around him and meeting all the legendary Boston people and, you know, it, it happened all the time. So it'd be hard to choose. But I remember George Hallis because he, he told me it was nice to meet me. And then he told me I had mustard on my pants. <laughs> we were in the we were in the press box at Soldier Field, and I had had a uh, 
I had had a hot dog and apparently missed the mark a little bit with the mustard. So a little <laughs> embarrassing. I remember it all these years later, so it was pretty embarrassing. I will picking up the phone, but uh, pick up on that Johnny and I phone call. Did you actually make answer the phone that day? Oh, yeah. Oh, we were very polite, you know. Yeah, who's calling, please? Johnny Unitas. You know, it's, uh, you know, when my dad died, I mean, the, one of the, the phone call I remember the most was from Al Davis. And I was at my parents' house uh, down in Hingham. And, you know, it was, we're all in shock and people are coming and going. And somebody came, whatever room I was in, said, you know, Al Davis is on the phone and he'd, he'd like to talk to you. So, what I remember is he was so emotional and Sid Gilman, you know, the legendary coach and yeah. uh, had died a week before my dad. I'm pretty sure it was something like that. And he said, like almost sobbing on the phone, Sid Gilman and your father in the same week, two of the pillars of my life. And now, and I was so touched by it. I was also kind of thinking, you know, you're supposed to be consoling me, but, uh, <laughs> he, you know, my dad had a lot of friends who, you know, as you guys know, and sometimes he got criticized for being too close to the people he covered, but he didn't give he two craps about that, as you guys know. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the Red Auerbachs and Bill Parcells and Al Davises. It's yeah. uh, he had fascinating friends. Speaking of, I, 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 try, I called up uh, Bill Parcells when his dad died, and um, Bill was down in Dallas, and um, we asked, I asked, just get a couple of thoughts, like everybody did when, when your dad passed away. And Parcells wept like a baby. He wept like a child. Well, he told us that he wasn't going to come to the funeral because for that reason, that he was like so emotional. He, he... Exactly right. And we, I, I still have the, the cassette tape, which we never used because he, he couldn't even utter a sentence or a word. He was so upset and so distraught. And yeah, they were they were really, really, uh, really close. One time I went to a charity golf thing with them down in Connecticut it was when Bill was here. And um, so, you know, he had the big Cadillac and my dad was in the front with him. And I'm sitting in the back seat thinking this is really cool. And uh, they were both baseball. Bill is a big baseball fan. Right. And they would say like the 1953 Detroit Tigers starting nine go, and Parcells would say it was this guy at third, and that shortstop. No, 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 that was 1954. No, it wasn't. That's BS. Then it was Sean called the Globe. Like it's probably before Google and all that, right? So I kept bothering the poor kid who was answering the you know the desk at the Globe. Can you get, look up the baseball encyclopedia? Who was the second baseman for the Cardinals in 1957? Or you know, so. Uh, and it was three and a half hours of that. I was like, could we do anything else? Could you guys maybe talk about football? You know, I'd love to listen to you guys talk about something else other than baseball trivia for three and a half hours. But, yeah, they were great, great pals. Yeah, I remember, he, um, you know, your dad was the first one that took the NFL Today show out of the studio and did look live or look live interviews. And I remember your dad had a cup of coffee and Parcells might have had one, and they were walking around Giant Stadium. It had to be you know, probably eight o'clock in the morning for a one o'clock game. And it was great because it was one of those walk and talk, you know, the cameraman's walking backwards. And it was really the first time that it wasn't, you know, perfect lighting, perfect hair, perfect jacket. It was just, it was Willie is what it was. Right. 
Well, the, if anything, the McDonald's are not cosmetically correct on the TV. Right? You, you handsome well, anchor people. Actually, your sisters, you better not. Uh, my sisters are there, beautiful. As a matter of fact, sisters are in you guys know my sisters, and nobody can believe we actually come from the same gene pool. But uh, <laughs> the no, and I remember when um, you know my dad started on TV. It was kind of by accident, and he was really the first information man. I think. Yeah. CBS brought him to be on the old NFL today with Brent and the other guys. And Brent told me the story, you know, and um, he was just going to come on and talk about something he had written for one segment. And Brent said, but he knew so much about what was going on. He'd say things like, oh, by the way, that quarterback's not going to play today. And if they lose, that coach is going to get fired and blah, 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 whatever. And just making up examples. But and Brent said, like, everything he said turned out to be true. So why don't we invite him back next week for another segment and then it became the thing, you know, so he was the forerunner to all the Chris Mortensen and Adam Schefter and Peter Gammons in baseball and yeah. all these other people. And when my dad died, Peter King reached out to me and said, when I got on TV, the first person I called was your dad to thank him, because if, if this wasn't a success, they probably would have said, you know what, we tried that. It's not really an idea that's going to work, but because it did work, um, now all of us have this opportunity. The only reason my dad did it was for the money. You know, he didn't. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah, he had no interest in being a TV person at all. But, uh, you know, I was about to go to college. I'm the oldest of five. You know, there's a lot more tuitions to pay. God loved the globe. We loved the globe. But, you know, it. Uh, he wasn't awash in cash, just working at the globe. It's probably why he liked you guys. You guys probably gave him 50 bucks when he came on your Sunday night show. And, uh, you know, it helped the cause, it helped him buy a couple of top flights or titleists or something. So he was, uh, he was the most influential person I know in the media in Boston. Uh, of all, of all times. And that was good and bad, both. Because right. he took sides. Oh, yeah. There was nothing about Will that was was neutral. He took no. sides. No, and he didn't like Vanilla. sides means you had to pick the side that Will was on or you're dead. <laughs> yeah. And I might have actually been victimized by that once or twice. Well, I was going to, you know what? I'm really glad you brought that up because I was kind of going down that road, but I wasn't quite sure how far to go down. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I'm, uh, you got fired. I'm reasonably sure I've lost two jobs, at least in part, because people involved, uh, didn't like my dad or felt like they had to settle the score with my dad. And it's smart, right? Because, you could say anything to my dad, he wouldn't care. But if you hurt one of his kids, then okay, good for you. So, um, you know, I, I I think there's, I probably shouldn't get into too many specifics, but, well, um, I, I know but you know, it, I, did he help open the door? I mean, absolutely. I, you know, I'm sure I probably got hired at Nesson a year out of, less than a year out of Syracuse um, because he helped open that door. Uh, you know, once you get there, hopefully you get to earn the right to stay there. But did it, it help me being well McDonough's son, especially the beginning? Sure. Um, but it definitely hurt a couple times, too. <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, you know, all the well, things in my life, idea. my I family, I would never have traded, you know, you guys know how I feel about my dad. And I've already said it several times on this, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But it, But it was an interesting life. You know, there's a couple of times with Red Sox players when I was doing the games would give me a hard time in the clubhouse about something my father wrote. And I was like, guys, really, I can get you his phone number if you want. I have nothing to do with that. No matter if some of the opinions he's written about you, you and you, I don't even necessarily agree with. So 
you know, if, if I wanted to say to like Roger Clemens when my dad called him the Texas con man, if I had a problem with you, I wouldn't yell at Kobe or Corey, right? I would call you or I would talk to you. So if you have a problem with Will, you know where to get him. If you don't know where to get him, I can help you get him. So I took some uh, shrapnel over the years from stuff that my dad had written, but that's all right. Raymond Claiborne. Yeah. I was there. Were you there, Bob, when they uh, had the fight in the locker? September of 1979. No, I was I not in the locker room at that, then. I was not there then. Willie decked him. I'm going to tell you, Willie knocked him off cold. Like, it was like a barroom fight. One punch, gone, right in the jaw. Well, it was um, the – we used to go to all the games back in the old – that was in the old stadium, right? And you know, kids today have no idea that – for a long, long time, the Patriots, if they weren't the worst team in the league, were one of the worst. And back, we talk about being a fan. Back in those days, I was a big fan. I remember, you know, being disconsolate when, on the ride home when the Patriots lost again, and now they're, you know, three and eleven or something. But the, uh, yeah. so I, we were waiting for my dad, which we used to do all the time. Uh, you know, outside the little that little building that was in the end zone where the locker rooms were, or whatever, the parking lot was right there. We were waiting, and you know, my dad didn't waste a lot of time. Usually, he went down there to get a few quotes, and uh, which he didn't even write down. He just would remember them, and nobody ever complained about him just quoted. So, as he said, if I messed it up, usually I make them st sound smarter than they actually are. So, but the uh, so it's taken a while, and then a security guard came out to us like, "Are you the McDonough kids?" Yes. Oh, there's been a little incident or whatever. So. Uh, yeah, you know, my, my dad was getting a little medical attention because Claiborne, you were there, and she just kind of started it by poking my dad in the eye. And that's so his eye was red right here. Um, so he wound up. And, but it was great because I was in high school. And, you know, we all remember when we were kids, you know, my father can beat up your father. You know, <laughs> that was all over your stations, you know, that night. And it was the video to prove it. Never mind my father can beat up your father. My father can beat up NFL football players. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was memorable. Um, I went on a tour of colleges. Remember, I think that's when we encountered George Hallis because I was in the Midwest and looking at Notre Dame. And, and then the Patriots were on Monday Night Football. And um, we were in the hotel in Green Bay on a Sunday night. And Howard Cosell walked in. And Will McDonough, Will McDonough, Larry Holmes wants you. you know, <laughs> <he's>, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I think it was Larry Holmes. I think we had just watched Larry Holmes and Ernie Shavers fight while we were on this uh, trip. But, uh, yeah, so that was, you know, and when my dad died, that came up a lot when people were writing these or speaking these retrospectives. He and Claiborne actually, I think, you know, from stories I've been told, kind of became friends later, patched it up. and You know, a few people, Sean, realized that your dad was uh, Billy Bulger's campaign manager in Southie, his first, first campaign manager before the Senate president became the Senate president as he worked his way up through the, you know, legislature. Yeah, apparently my dad's greatest contribution was – having friends of his go around and take down the signs from other people who are running, uh, <laughs> which I guess as a novice campaign manager is probably, you know, it's a, it could be a strategy, but, but yeah, I, he and, uh, he and Senator Bulger were lifelong great pals. Don't and, uh, remember, I remember your dad's funeral and this is. Yeah. Billy collapsed. Billy collapsed. And of course the joke was that Billy saw Whitey 
you know, out of the you there know, are some you, people who still believe that, Bob. Yeah, you know, there uh, are some people who still believe Whitey was there. Yes. Can you confirm compelling arguments on both sides? Can so you compel or can you? When confirm? I first heard it, I thought that is the biggest bunch of you know. There's no chance. Right? I mean, as you know, there were you know it was being televised on NECN, I think. Um, there were police officers everywhere. Every TV station was there. Everybody Whitey would have known from South Boston, you know, grew up around the same time with my dad. So, um, but my aunt, uh, Peggy was my dad. My dad was youngest of nine. She was the one just older than him. Um, she was a hundred percent convinced that Whitey was there and that Billy saw him. And, um, yeah. So I remember thinking, I think at the time he was number two. Uh, he ascended to number one on the most wanted list, but he was number two, I think, behind Osama bin Laden. So I remember saying to Peggy, like, Peggy, I mean, <laughs> this is the last place on earth he would be. But then when he died, you know, he said, when he got caught, he said something along the lines of, oh, I was back to Boston a half a dozen times over the years, you know, during my time on the run for things that were personally important to me. So I'm like, oh, Really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. You know, so I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, but uh, urban yeah, legend. But it's, a, it's urban an interesting legend. story, anyway. It's an interesting story. Yeah. You know, when your dad, Senator Baldwin, did dad? not say the reason I collapsed is because I just saw Whitey. I can confirm that <laughs> when we were in the front of the church where the priest gets dressed and trying to make sure that Senator Bulger was okay. Um, there was no mention of. Oh my God! Did you see Whitey, you see Whitey right going to, to communion? McMullen, wasn't he? What's that? Jackie, she was sitting right next to Jackie McMullen. Yeah, McMullen. yeah, he was because they were pallbearers. Um, so they were right, right in the front of the church. Uh, Senator Bulger was in the front row, we, we, on the opposite side of the the entry. I was here, and he was over there, and he heard a bang. Well, you were there, and I thought. I thought somebody just dropped one of those really heavy, you know, hymnals that we have in the Catholic Church. And but it was it was uh, Senator Bulger. And then I saw a friend of my brother's uh, who's an EMT kind of diving over a couple of pews. I thought, oh, this can't be good. So I went running over there. And, uh, you know, he was he was just upset. You know, he was emotional. It was warm in the church. If you remember, it was about 18 degrees outside. But uh, it was super cold. Weak. You know, that's when my dad died. One of the first thoughts I had because it was unexpected was where are we going to have the wake and the funeral? Because it's supposed to be, you know, 18 degrees for the high for a week. And if we have it at some little Irish funeral home, you know, people aren't going to wait in line. If they do, they're going to freeze to death. So that was an answer to prayer. And, you know, I said to our family, let's all go home and try to get a couple hours of sleep and we'll meet in Hingham tomorrow morning. And uh, on the right, right down, Rich Creswick and Harry Sinden and Nate Greenberg called me and said, we want to give your family the arena because we think it's going to be the only place in the city big enough for the, the wake and the funeral. And that's why we had the wake in there. Only your dad could have television on the funeral. Only your dad could have a wake inside the Boston Garden. I mean, he was unique in life and in death. Well, I, I want to write a book about it because there's so many more stories, like just the two or three weeks from like the, when he died till all of that stuff. You know, one of our concerns and Rich Creswick and the garden people did an unbelievable job was that it was going to be so big and cold and antiseptic and impersonal. But as you remember, they, they dropped a curtain right, right down the middle of the garden. And we were on one side with 
the flowers and the casket, and we could only see about the first 50 people in the line. And then everybody else was on the other side, but they had a bunch of exhibits and tapes that you guys had probably done of, you know, the tributes at the different stations. And the, the line went like this, so people could talk to other people while they were in the line. But we got there early, and we started early because there was already a line. And I think it was Theo and, and Dr. Charles were among the first people in line. And one of my brothers nudged me, and I said, look. And there were two floral arrangements from the Yankees. One was from the New York Yankees, and one was personally from George Steinbrenner. And the Red Sox had sent one beautiful one. Well, a half hour later, an hour later, here come two floral arrangements from the Red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're beating the Yankees three to two. So I thought, this is pretty cool that the rivalry even extends to who can send the most floral arrangements to Will's funeral or Will's wake. Mm -hmm. mm. oh. Hey, let me, get, let me get a quick, quick little spot in here for a big fan of your dad, George Gray. And if you're thinking about a new vehicle, go where Lobie and Lynchy go. Go see our friend George Gray at George Gray's Lexington Toyota. We've been customers for years because we know that George Gray is going to treat you right. They're a family-owned and operated dealership that we trust and you can trust as well. Go see the great George Gray at Lexington Toyota, 409 Mass Ave in Lexington. And George Gray was a big, big, and still is a big fan of yours, Sean. He's a big fan of your dad's. And uh, uh, we're so happy that, that he's one of our sponsors. Um, that, that, that funeral in that wake, uh, something I will never, ever forget. And anybody else who was a part of it will never, ever forget. And, um, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, I didn't know the, the flower story, but uh, I remember the, 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 the curtain halfway through and it's kind of like, uh, but no disrespect, but kind of like walking through, through a line in Disney world, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, there were so many unbelievable stories. And what I liked was it was, um, you know, the governor and Robert Kraft and somebody else. And then here came, you know, six guys who just staggered out of the bar across the street on Causeway street. And, and all of it was touching and meaningful. And my dad would have loved that part of it. Right. It was just this collection of, uh, of everybody. And you know, it was a fascinating day and uh, learned a lot of, you know, I always knew, you know, I think one of the reasons so many people want to be there because my dad did so many things for other people and most of which never were, were publicized. And um, the Charlestown High School basketball team came through the curtain and they had on jackets. And my dad had written um, weeks before, you know, like or a year before maybe, Charlestown High, they won the state tournament, you know, but too bad they didn't even have a bank or jackets, or whatever. And I'm gonna, this is roughly 20 something, 20 years later, I think, accurate. But anyway, um, so the week, you know, the next weekend is Saturday notes thing. I want to thank our loyal viewers. You know, the headmaster and the coach tell me that people sent money and these kids are getting jackets. So now here come the kids with the jackets on through the curtain. So again, my brothers and I are nudging each other. We all know. And then um, so when they got to the front, they said to us, we didn't have to tell the kids they're getting on the bus and going this or waiting in line. They wanted to do this. And what your dad didn't write was he had sent enough money that if nobody else sent a nickel, they would have had jackets. So, you know, that's, that's who he was. Yep. And uh, we miss him. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, I think he would have been extremely proud of what you've accomplished. I well, think, I appreciate I, that. I mean, don't you believe that? I mean, you have to. I do. You know, I hope, uh, I hope so. I hope he'd be more proud of me as a person because that's what he cared about more than anything else. And, 
you know, I, I still live my life every day trying to make him proud. Um, so I appreciate that, Bob. I really do. And I, I really believe it. I really believe it. And um, I, I, I have my own, well, never, never mind, my own special memories. <laughs> I know you do. You guys had a lot of uh, fun together. And as I said, uh, he greatly appreciated, uh, you know, I think what he, you know, he didn't like phonies, right? And he knew that both of you guys were sincere, legitimate, true to yourself guys. You know, you weren't putting on airs and you weren't, uh, despite your, both of your, uh, you know, incredible popularity, which unfortunately will never happen again, as you said earlier, Bob, for somebody yeah. that's like the, the local news, the sports on the news, because it almost doesn't exist anymore. But, it doesn't, uh, because everybody knows what the story is long before they get to it. Yeah. Well, I remember, and I believe you with this, because I'm supposed to jump on a Zoom call in four minutes with the South oh, Carolina right. football coaches, but the we're busy um, too, Sean. I remember. I remember. <laughs> I know you are. You got to go up and check out those new RVs. I remember the first year I did spring training, you know, the Red Sox games, 1988. We went Winter Haven. And I got invited to go to dinner with Alan Miller and Bob Lobel. And I remember <laughs> we were at some like oyster thing in Lake Alfred. And I'm thinking, I'm out yeah. to dinner with Bob Lobel. I, <laughs> I have made it. You know, this is, so it's great to see you guys. I'm well, who sorry, paid for dinner? That's what I want to know. Right? I'm well, sure BG. Did Lobel pay? That's what I want to know, Sean. Did Lobel pay? paid. Okay. Yeah, well, BZ got the bill. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. And he still did the 11 o'clock sports from the pool, which I thought was really <laughs> I don't know who wrote the script, but somebody did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean. Thanks so much. You were great see as you always. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sean. You got it. My pleasure, guys. Bye-bye. Unanchored Boston is a presentation of Unanchored Media, a Burke Advertising LLC company. For show information, visit unanchoredboston.com.